When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And welcome to all you new people. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe. We have new episodes coming out every Monday. If you've been here for a while, make sure to hit us up on Instagram and Facebook and DM us or message us and send us who you'd like us to talk about next. But if you are a lover of good music, make sure to go in the description of the episode, become a patron on Patreon. Uh, there you get special stuff like access to episodes early and special access to our After Hours, which is the bad music podcast where we talk about the worst songs from the artists that we're talking about today. But, Lucas, who are we talking about today? Oh, we're talking about one of my favorite bands whenever I was in high school and a band that has constantly challenged me musically, char- challenged me as a musician and has always continued to be a great onion of a band, a band that has lots of layers. And that band is called Meshuga. Why are they called Meshuga? It is the Yiddish word for crazy. And I think it's a perfectly apt description of the band's sound. So Lucas, what are your what are your first thoughts about Meshuga? Well, like I just said, I've been a Meshuga fan for quite a long time. Uh, I have to thank a friend of mine named Andrew Dale for introducing me to them a long time ago. I remember there was a point um, – I'm a, dr- I'm a drummer, I would say first and foremost. It's my – I guess I would call my primary instrument. And at the time that I was introduced to them, I was like really hard into dream theater and um i was getting pretty cocky about my drumming skills because i was getting to the point where i could play which i look back at now i don't think i was really playing many of those dream theater songs well at all but i was able to at least like navigate my way through the songs play the parts yeah whether or not again they sounded yeah. <laughs> any good is probably a different story but I was bragging to this friend and, and saying, man, I'm, I'm becoming such a good drummer. Dream Theater is getting easy. And he just looked at me and said, I know a band that you'll never be able to play. And <laughs> I was just like, whatever. I'm sure I could. And so he pulled up their song Bleed for me and immediately, like, my heart sank. 
<laughs> your heart sank oh. and lifted at the same time. Yes, it was. It was this humbling moment, but at the same time, I was just like, "Okay, I gotta, I gotta get into this." And um, they were the first ever extreme band that I ever got into. So whenever I use that uh, term, I mostly mean. I, I judge an extreme band based on the way the vocals sound, extreme vocals or harsh vocals. I had never really liked any bands that had that sound until I discovered Meshuggah. And for me, it was just the pure musicianship of what they were doing was enough for me at the time to like kind of overlook the vocals. And then eventually I even grew to start liking the vocals but I wouldn't really like any other harsh vocal artists, any extreme artists, until about probably five years later when I discovered Death. Yeah. They were the, they were the band that got me into listening lots of other extreme metal groups. But Meshuggah was definitely the, uh, the first one. So where would you put yourself on, on our on our scale, um, scale of one to five, I would put myself at a five. They have been incredibly influential on me. They continue to thrill me. Like this was one of the most fun times I've ever had um, researching an artist, going through uh, making the ranked playlist. I actually discovered a lot of Meshuga songs that I had never listened to before. I hadn't really listened to. Um, any of their really early stuff. And I hadn't listened to a lot of their bonus songs in their EPs. And so there was a lot of brand new um, music for me to uncover, which was really exciting. And also uh, plenty of songs that I just hadn't listened to in quite a long time. So um, this was a, this was very fun to put this episode together, put this set list together and um, they are a band that at different points could have fit that revolving fifth position. Wow. They what, what keeps them from the top? Um, I think the fact that they don't inspire me directly as a musician, where the four pillars absolutely do, um, you know... Rush, Queen, Pink Floyd, Iron Maiden, they all um, really bleed into who I am as a musician, where Meshuggah doesn't as much. I don't have any desire to play like Meshuggah. Mm -hmm. They're one of those bands that it's like, I love to listen to them, but I wouldn't ever want to play it. Mm. That's maybe, maybe partly because I still have no idea how to play it. Yeah, as a drummer, especially this is these Meshuggah has some of the most insane drums that you will ever come across. Yep, and um, I, th I do think that part of me is con continues to be very, uh, very intimidated by what Thomas Heike does, and also it's it's not particularly the brand of metal I would want to play, but. I love to listen to it. And it's very it's very cognitively engaging. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's they you could describe them as a prog metal group, even though they don't fit necessarily squarely in the prog. No, there's a there's a different genre that they are officially categorized as, but they are very progressive. They have a lot of very weird zany ideas, as well as all of the crazy mathematical stuff that's going on throughout all of their songs. What uh, what is that genre specifically? That genre is called Gent. They're a Gent band. They are the creators of Gent. I did not see because they don't follow any of the stereotypes. No, they don't. That's what's really interesting about them because Meshuggah has been around since the late 80s. So this band is pretty old. Yeah. And at least for a metal group, they are. And like some of these guys are getting into their 50s now. Mm hmm. And they can still play the heck out of their instruments. <laughs> um, but they were doing, you know, they were doing the gent thing 20 years before anyone else even started to copy them. It took the metal scene kind of that long to catch up to them. And even then, most other gent bands are a very poor, um, poor man's Meshuggah. And Meshuggah does not like the category of gent. They don't like being called gent. Um, they they say that they feel honored that they have been, you know, referred to as the starter of something. But they're just like they're like, would are we a gent band? No, we're we just consider ourselves a metal band. That's it. That's fair. Uh, gent has kind of become a bit of a a hated genre in metal kind of in the same way that genres like new metal and um you know metalcore just because a lot of bands have overdone it and not played it well there was an oversaturation i would say um because right now the metal scene the way that it is that there's no dominant genre anymore gent was kind of like the last genre in metal to kind of like really have a fad Mm-hmm. Where so many bands either were be, were forming to become a gent band, or existing bands trying to incorporate gent into their existing sound, mm-hmm. and now it's kind of like we've just come on the other side of that to where gent's not the big thing anymore. But from like from like oh nine to. 2014 I would say that was like the period of Gent being the main focus and the whole reason it started then was when Meshuggah released their album Obzen that album was kind of like their the finally the point to where they rose up in the metal world mm-hmm. where they finally started to become worldwide recognized for what they had already been doing for you know 15 years up to that point 15, 20 years. So, so that what was so different once, about Bob's then, I guess. Um, well, first off, they had the song Bleed, which some people that are Meshuggah fans are going to m- maybe be shocked by the fact that we're not going to talk about that song in this episode. I did that for a reason. And uh, but that song was just it almost was like it became a meme song because of just how insane it is. Yeah, that's true. It's it may be the one of the most insane metal songs ever conceived by mortal man. <laughs> um, 
which Ethan, have you ever heard Bleed? Oh yeah, that was the yeah. first Mashuga song that you showed it to me. It's the, it's most everyone's first Mashuga song. Like almost every metalhead has heard that song at some point. It's the Inner Sandman of Gent. Yeah, it's it it could, <laughs> it could be the Inner Sandman of extreme music. Mm, it's yeah. just, it's one it's one of those like undeniable like entrance to extreme metal songs. It's that one you pull out to like lure people in and go, I, look how amazing this can be. I don't know because when I first listened to it, it was a really like a big turnoff. I mean, yeah. just being honest, but but that's back when I thought that Pantera was extreme. Yeah. And now I see just Pantera as heavy and like I actually really like the the Phil Anselmo style vocals and now of course like I'm into Opeth and Death and so maybe I'll have to listen to it again. I do remember it being intense and that the kick drum sounded like a motorcycle. Mhm. That was the whole joke. Yeah, the whole the whole song is built around hertas, which is a rhythmic pattern. Oh. And and yeah, so I guess all that to say, they started the gent genre, but they also don't really belong to it. But there's also not really a better um, way to describe them. They created it, yet they're really above it. They are Mashuga. They are Mashuga. No one, no one sounds like Mashuga. No one does jet the way that Mashuga does. So then, how did how did they get started? Tell me, just give me the give me the timeline here. So the timeline is um, you've really got one founding member, and that is vocalist Jens Kidman. So this is a Swedish band, mm-hmm. and. Uh, this would be mid to late. I want to say the band officially formed in like 87. And uh, it was, it was Jens Kidman's band, but in the very, very early stages, um, lead guitarist, Frederick Thorndale joined the band before they had even played any shows or recorded anything. So it's pretty much, you could consider Frederick to be a founding member, even though it, he joined Jens's band. Mm. His band of one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't even think it was a band of one at that point, but like it was, you know, it was he he auditioned for his band. Oh, okay. So um, you know, he's but he's he him and Jens are the only two that have been there since the very beginning. Yeah. But they have had a pretty stable uh lineup of musicians um because in the very initial stages of the group jens not only did the vocals but he was also the rhythm guitarist wow eventually uh abandoned he only plays guitar on the first record oh and that record is actually has quite a bit of thrash element and uh he wasn't even really at that point yet. He sounded much more like uh, James Hetfield than he did the, uh, the, the beast that he became. And so it was, and the music was much less complex. And then as, as they started to get more 
uh, experimental and more adventurous with their music, then they went ahead and got a full-time uh, rhythm guitarist with uh, Martin Hagstrom. And he's once he joined in 94, he's been with the band ever since. And then uh, you've got drummer Thomas Heike, who he has played on everything except for the initial 1989 demo EP. They, they had like a three-song EP that came out in like 88 or 89. And they had a different drummer for that. But then uh, Thomas joined and has played on every official release. Uh, the bass guitar is where they had the most lineup changes, but still, uh, they've had the same bassist, Dick Lovgren, since 2004. So he's... he's That is really stable. So he's he's been with the band quite a while, but mm. they did have two bassists before him. Mm. And one of them was... The middle one was very short-lived. He, only, he was only there for like three or four years. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a pretty stable lineup. And that's the whole lineup, all the all the extra effects and whatever. Uh, there's five. There's five guys. You've got lead and rhythm guitar, vocals, drums, and bass. Okay. So and, that's that, that's your all the crazy sounds and stuff comes from just them doing studio tricks and effects. That's yeah. not that's not like a like a oh by the way someone also plays keyboards. No, there's no keyboards at all. Everything that you hear is from a guitar. That's nice. Um also they have the most bizarre way of recording that I've ever come across in my life. And it's really fascinating. Okay. So they do not record live together mm -hmm. they don't even write together they don't even come up with their own parts what they do is they have perfected the art of demo making and what they do is individual members of the band will create an entire sounding an entire song except for vocals vocals is the only thing where that's that kind of comes in later, but even then, it's still demoed in. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say you've got pretty much three primary songwriters, and that's both the guitar players and drummer Thomas. They're 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 kind of like the the three main songwriters, and then uh, Jens comes in with a lot of uh, he he gets to come up with his own vocal parts. So what they do is that they separate in their homes or they'll go into the studio at different points and they will make a song that sounds pretty much almost exactly like a live band does. It's that good of a demo and it's completely computer processed. And what it does is it, it allows them to figure out exactly how everything's going to fit together. They don't have to use trial and error of trying to learn the parts together in the room oh. they, they can they can piece it together they can on the computer move a note or a beat a little bit here a little bit there until they get the riffs and the drum beat exactly the way that they want it 
So let's say Frederick Thorndale, lead guitarist, has a song. He pretty much brings it to them completely finished. And they decide, okay, I really like this or no, this this song isn't isn't good enough. If it is good enough, then they'll all take the demo home and they'll start learning it. And then they'll kind of start to, after they learn it, they'll kind of have a meeting and go, okay, this is the song. I know what we're doing now. This is now how I would change it to make it more my style. And they would Mm -hmm. like at that point start tweaking it here and there to kind of make it to where it's more natural to the way they would play. So in that tweaking, is it um, so like, do they perfect it so much by their own like individual styles that it's almost impossible to tell who wrote the original song? Or is there still that backbone that you can kind of tell like with um, sticks, for example? No, it's pretty much there. They all very much think on the same page. Okay. There's not one where it's like, oh, that's definitely a Thorndale song. That's definitely a Hagstrom song. Like it's it's pretty. They're they're pretty much thinking on the same brain laying at all times. But like stuff they'll do is they'll talk about like you know, hey, let's maybe move this segment to this part. They'll work on the arrangement of the song. They'll uh, and then finally, once kind of the song's done, then they. Um, They'll come up with the, and usually Thomas Hike writes all the lyrics. He's kind of the Neil Peart of the band in that sense, mm-hmm. the drummer, lyricist. And then they'll give the lyrics to Jens. And Jens actually has maybe one of the most difficult jobs because his, and this is what really made me grow to appreciate his vocal style, is that I see it as a rhythmic component to the music. <laughs> yeah. It's very much because again, there's no melody. It's all screaming, but it's not. It's not in the way that um, that Chuck Schuldner would scream, where it's 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 like it's it's screaming, but it's got more of a melodic flow to it. Mm-hmm. If you get what I mean, where yeah. it's it's kind of like just it's it doesn't have a lot of rhythm to it. It's like you could imagine notes being there. Oh yeah, uh, it's if, it's, it's of- so easy to sing a Chuck Schuldinger lyric. You can mm-hmm. turn that very easily into a vocal line. But these, it's like, what in the world is happening? But you're right. Now that you say that, it sounds very rhythmic. I mean, I it's- think like our last song of the set is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Jens is doing is he's coming up with the rhythm of how he's going to say everything and making it to where it's compatible with what's going on underneath him. And it's very, very interesting how he does it. So when lyrics are written, it's not taking into account how he's going to sing it. It's just coming up with with good lyrics. He's coming up with the lyrics. And of course, the lyrics sometimes will change if Jens is like, man, I cannot make a way for this lyric to... Um, fit in let's if i cha- if we change this word to this word or change the phrasing here it c- i could make this rhythm work and it would sound really great so the song already in its composition is a puzzle yes it's all it's all of these constant moving pieces just um moving around and and so because of that also they don't record live together like i said they all layer their parts on top of each other it's and it's meant to intentionally create this 
is very cold, mechanistic. But at the same time, there's so much groove. Yeah, that's true. So, um, so yeah, that's 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 the way that they record. I've never seen anyone do it like that before. Also, one of the things that gives them their very uh, recognizable sound is the fact that both guitarists use eight-string guitars. Oh, that makes sense, actually. Eight how, how how does an eight string get tuned? I don't know. <laughs> um, it's like the normal six string guitar, but the other two strings are lower. So there's a B, and then there's an F sharp. Yeah, their their lowest string is might as well be a bass string. It it yeah, it, it's two half steps above the low bass string, the low E on the bass. Yeah, so they were the first band to ever play with an eight string. The first eight string guitars ever were created for them <laughs> because no one had ever come up with a musical style that could even handle an eight string guitar. Um, so, and then of, of course, you know, all the gent bands followed in their footsteps of getting these massive, you know, you've got the, you've got the, the meme, channels like jared dines that has like you know the 24 string guitar mm -hmm. those you know, some of those really exist and they actually are kind of cool there's like a 18 yeah. 19 string like the war guitars but those it's certainly for a different style but like yeah it's amazing though that more than seven strings didn't exist until 2006 yeah because that, that's when they commissioned them to be made and it was like it was almost like at that point also technology finally caught up to where you could actually have effects and amps that could even process that low of guitar mm -hmm. sound. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, they the, the whole reason that they were the first ones to do it was because they were the first ones to crack the code on how to get it to sound good. Mm -hmm. They are um, Frederick and Martin are very much. Um, pioneers in guitar sound they are they're they are sound wizards yeah i noticed a lot of the and i was surprised when you said that they were like from the late 80s because a lot of the guitars here and i don't know where we are in their discovery we're mostly going to be looking at the period of the earliest in the set is from 98 okay and the latest song is from 2012 okay that that actually makes sense because a lot of the song well i mean even still a lot of the guitars that you hear on this set sound very modern like they sound up to date with the sound today mm -hmm. right like super yeah. mid heavy super chunky super warm whereas a lot of the stuff in like you know especially the 90s was still kind of scooped uh-huh you know, dream theater still had that scooped sound of course you have pantera um metallica was still kind of in in their in their scoopiness sound they didn't quite get to the extreme other side of things with saint anger right but i don't know like the like everything in the mashuga songs that we're going to talk about the mix just felt every instrument felt full 
mm-hmm. but also every instrument felt like it had its space and that's like the that's the level of mm-hmm. mixing that like you have mixing zen if you can pull that off you know so all right well at this point i want to I had I had given my uh, my first thoughts. Now I'm I'm curious to hear you guys. Uh, I'll, we'll start with you, Grant. Okay. Well, I don't want to be that guy, but I would almost say that I'm a Mashuga critic as a first thought. Because I mean, I had heard Bleed, and like I said, it was kind of a turnoff because it just felt too extreme. And at that point, I just had put away Meshuggah and I was never going to touch it again. I felt like it was too weird, you know. Um, and I also heard, I told you that that I'd listened to that blackened cover by Meshuggah and, and I found out it was in the style of Meshuggah and that kind of saved things. Yeah, Meshuggah does not do covers. Right. Had, had we not had that conversation, it I would still believe that they would have done a terrible Metallica cover. And that's why before this first thoughts, without listening to the set, I would have put them at, I, I would have been a sugar critic. I wouldn't have been a hater because it's like their metal. I'm going to not hate on my own genre, but yeah. All right. That's it. That's it. That's all I got to say. Where do you where do you stand on the spectrum? I uh, I I was lucky enough, Lucas, um, on our on our car rides to a gig that was very far away. Lucas kind of took me through uh, the Mashuga Gauntlet, and I would say I. The, the scale is a little bit... I might have to redo the scale a little bit because it's like, I know that the thing that they're doing is good, you know? Like, I I can't say that Meshuggah is not a good band and that it's not good music, you know? Because that wouldn't be fair and that wouldn't be right of me to say. But I think for me personally, I would say I would probably be a two before we get into all this and i think it's mainly because i <laughs> this is gonna sound so frou-frou and and weenie but like i don't like how it makes me feel whenever i listen to it <laughs> no that that's valid though that's a valid point like and but i but i said and we're about to get into the set like and really go through it um but like they do a really good job of like the dissonance that they create and the tensions that they create and the soundscape that they make, they do it on purpose, which we've talked in in the past, especially if you listen to the bad music podcast, where it's like, did they do what they set out to do, you know, as like the main indicator of like, if they're good. Mm. And for Meshuggah, it's like, yes, across the board, none of these songs sound like they were accidental in any way, shape or form. And what they make me feel, they purposed out to make me feel that way. It's just like, I, I, you know, <laughs> it's it's called extreme for a reason, and that, and that's probably why I just naturally don't I don't I don't really gravitate towards metal, and I can stomach metal, but then and we've talked in the past like the the harsh vocals and stuff like I usually just am not one to gravitate towards like the the genre, but I can't say that it's not good. 
And so I would probably put myself as a as a critic, but not as like a critic of Meshuggah. It's more of just um, my personality and this genre of music have a tough time coexisting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good way to put it. Well, I'm now very interested to see what uh, may potentially change as we go through here. Was there anything will... that you guys were wanting to uh, bring up before we move on to the next section? I, I will say that one of the things that's going to change my mind, because this changes my mind about a lot of bands, is the layers. You talked that like, or you're talking about how Meshuggah is an onion of a band. Uh, what, what do I need to know before like just in general about their music before we get into the specifics. Like, what do you mean by onion? So um, first off you have all of the, uh, all of the, all the rhythmic components, all of the, um, all of the different things mathematically that are lying underneath the surface. I'm sure that I don't even know all of what's going on. But there's even some stuff that I learned researching for this episode about songs that I've heard a million times that I never even thought of before and like kind of like had a brain explosion moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the lyrics, I think, really, really dictate the way that the song moves. The mm-hmm. lyrics, I think, are they're one of the biggest treasure troves as far as when you really start to analyze what they're saying. Because they're not a band where the lyrics are an afterthought at all. The lyrics are very, they're very intentionally cryptic, but they're not cryptic with nothing to say. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help that English is not their first language. And so that that almost like as an unintentional level of crypticness, but at the same time, you kind of can't help but think that they are intentionally relying on that that they're like um, you know oh because our English isn't very good it's it's going to intentionally make this sound so much more interesting mm-hmm. rather than saying it the way that and you know no normal English it adds a little bit of a um, a bit of an offness to it almost like it, it's it's a little disturbing the way that it sounds yeah. with the with the not quite correct English. That's going to be cool. The lyrical content always changes. It always pulls me around at the end. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. It's, and this, that's, I would say one of the biggest areas that I've just continued to find new things in and just really seeing the, um, how the lyrics really do indicate the structure of the song the song and the music moves according to what the lyrics are telling you that well you were talking about how their songwriting like starts with coming up with music Mm-hmm. so where does the lyrics come in then um i think that i think that the music ex- inspires what they're gonna write about and then the song is then rearranged around the lyrics. Yeah, because the usually the the song goes through a, a very heavy editing process as far as arrangement. Maybe not necessarily riffs, but they definitely, you know, once 
once they once they get settled on the real concept of the song, the uh, the arrangement really starts to to come alive. So um, it's just it's very very they do a really good job of making the lyrics and the music fit each other. Okay, and I think that's also something probably that Jens does a lot as he's recording is he's recognizing what the music is doing and going, well, what if we change the lyrics a little bit to kind of uh, to, to capture the feel that the music is giving us at this point and yeah. so on and so forth. Okay. So okay. The, ly- the lyrics are very interesting here, especially there's a, there's a particular um, part of the set that I'm going to go Octavarium on you guys. Is there, um, do they do the thing where they have like concept albums or they have like themes that run between albums? Do they do that kind of thing? They, um, they have, they've never, I would say they've only ever done one true concept record where it's like, where there's actual story from start to finish. Typically, if they do a concept album, it's more of a theme rather than a story. Um, like, say, with Obzen, the whole focus of that record is the the evil of man and what man is capable of. And just kind of the whole, the whole word of Obzen being a play on words, finding Zen in the obscene. Oh, that's funny, actually. <laughs> Obzen, Obzen. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of what that album specifically focuses on. But um, it's not; it doesn't tell you a story. Also, there's there's there are thematic um, uh, musical themes. Like you take a, an album like Chaos Fear. Every song on that album feels like Chaos Incarnate. Ooh. And it's the only Meshuggah album that really sounds like that. It's an incredibly unique sounding record in their discography. It, I mean, like you could not have come up with a better name for that record because it it literally feels like you have, you know, stepped into a different dimension. Even the way it's mixed, completely different from every other album they've ever done. And just the way that the songs are put together and um, the atmospheres that they create, it, it, it feels like you're in the middle of a brain that's been set on fire. So they're, they're kind of like Rush in the fact that every album is a new experience. Yes, they oh, are. I like that. They are oh. a band that always is moving forward, never looking back. I like that. While, while they do have those elements that that stay intact, those things that are, you know, incongruably part of their DNA, they also have a bold willingness to go in stark new directions. They're one of the most creatively inventive bands in the metal scene, for sure. Because they have... Their EPs, a lot of the times, are where you see their most interesting ideas come forth. They they love EPs. 
um, they see the EP as kind of a way to really experiment. Like you have the IEP that is one single 21 minute song. And the entire song is um, spontaneous. So it, it is, it completely abandons their normal songwriting procedure where they, where they plan everything out. It starts off with Thomas Hike improvising for 21 minutes and coming up with some of the most insane ideas and then them trying to figure out how do we make a song out of it. Oh, I like that. It's cool. And you know what? I want to listen to that. I think it's the best song they've ever made. I put I it in one ranked playlist. <laughs> oh, I have to listen to that after hours. Yeah. For 21 minutes. No. I don't even know how I would ever put it on yeah, one of our sets two epics. for this show. Just divide <laughs> it into six parts and then put it on Spotify, and then that'll be all six songs. Yeah. but And then have another uh, EP that we actually feature a little bit in the set called Catch 33, where it is it is broken into 13 tracks, but it's actually one continuous 42-minute suite with no breaks, constantly evolving. And mm-hmm. it also is, I would say, their purest um, – concept record because it does tell a story mm-hmm. i mean it really has to when you're when it's one continuous song yeah um but the big thing about that is that mem- remember how i was saying that they can make near perfect demos mm-hmm. that entire album is them on their demos wow now so the instruments uh, aren't actually real well the, the guitars are because it was the guitarist that made the chunk of it, but none of the drums are real. All the drums are programmed. That's cool. But it you would never think it if you were listening to it. That's how good their drum their drum machines are. Wow. They called it uh, yeah, they call yeah, it the drum kit. Sweet from hell. sample kit and load it up. <laughs> yeah. The the drum kit from uh, Microsoft, really. Yeah. Now the reason <laughs> the reason they initially came up with the idea is because it was out of out of necessity because uh, Thomas Hyde had had a leg injury and he was uh, he was not fully healed so he physically could not play mm. at the time and so they were just like well why don't our drum machines sound incredible why don't we make something out of that but we don't but they were like but we don't want to give you know our fans a full record that has programmed drums out let's yeah. make it an EP <laughs> even though it's 42 minutes long and um, they, man, they get so weird with it. But it's actually my favorite thing that they've done. I think it's their most brilliant piece. They they experiment so much with repetition and droning and simplistic repeating riffs that they somehow, in the repetition, continue to make more menacing and more... Um, and more nerve ending, unnerving. I guess is the is the correct word. Yeah, like you you kind of start to feel like you're you're getting punked in a way, and that and it's just like you when you are familiar with Meshuggah and you're listening to that record, 
you start to go just like there's a reason for this there has to be but you're listening to them just kind of playing the same riffs but then as you listen it starts to change and it starts to evolve and then when you get to the second half of that piece it just completely explodes into all these different moving parts that start to reference from previous into you find out that they're not only building tension but they're setting up all the groundwork for the recapitulation that's coming in the second half and the all of the lyrical stuff is super crazy and just musically it it comes together in one of the most like terrifying climaxes i've ever heard to a record yeah. <laughs> and you know me, I love my horror, I love my terrifying though, like heaven for me when I got would listen to this album for the first time. I remember I listened to it sitting alone with the lights off in my bedroom at like sixteen years old. I remember it was the <laughs> night before Easter. <laughs> I remember that night very vividly. I, I, I bought that record and I just listened to it. I remember being very confused at first and kind of disappointed. But then I kept listening and I'd started to it's like slowly it started to hit me what they were really doing. And it got to points to where I was just like like wide eyed, just like on pins and needles waiting for what was gonna happen next. <laughs> I don't know if you're trying to pique my interest, but you did that. My interest well, I mean, isn't that the point of the podcast to pique everyone's interest on on well yeah but it's like ooh, i don't i didn't expect i don't know i, mm, I don't expect or i should say i didn't expect i don't know what to expect now okay that's why i don't even know what to say but <laughs> before we hit record i didn't expect for Meshuggah to become one of my favorite bands, and now I would not be surprised if they do because of the way that you're talking about this. Knowing because... you and knowing how you've reacted to Dream Theater and Opeth, I I was surprised to hear you say that you were a Meshuggah critic. Yeah, because, because I, <laughs> I know is, is, that this is, is playing t-ball with gonna... you right now. Uh -huh. No, see, here's the thing. Lucas knows my <laughs> musical taste better than I do. That's the unfortunate reality. Mm-hmm. But, You're oh correct. my gosh. I love it when there's layers to songs, and I love it when there's, like, it's good when, like, hey, like, there's a there's a story behind the song, like, with Springsteen. I enjoy that as well, like, the lore with the artist and, like, just good-sounding songs, too. But, something like the reason I love dream theater is because the song in and of itself is the whole story, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like every time you listen, you pick up something new, like you pick up a different part that you don't quite remember sounding that way. Or like you pick up on another lyric and it like fits into the rest of the story. And of course we had that big octavarium, you know, actual octavarium moment in the dream theater episode. And I cannot wait. Oh my gosh. Let's just, let's stop talking so we can actually get there. All right, we'll go ahead and take a break here. When we come back, we're going to get into the six Meshuggah songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Meshuga and the onion of a band that they are. And Lucas has piqued my interest genuinely. <laughs> and I'm so excited to talk about the songs and pick them apart. And so I'm going to get right to business. Lucas, this is our sixth song segment. Why are we here? Why do we actually have this segment? Well, what this whole segment is about is for us to have concrete examples to talk about why this artist is great. The whole the whole way that we know that an artist is great is by looking at their songs, their work. So this is our opportunity to really get into concrete details, to talk about the songs. And the way that I have picked these songs is I'm picking what would be your best first step into this band. So it's not just me picking my six favorites or what I think are their six best songs. Rather, what are the best six songs to start off with in Meshuggah? As well as picking songs that have a great emotional flow from start to finish, that they transition well off of each other, and that they have a... Um, that you would have a significant emotional experience at the end of it. So, the way that you can go listen to these songs... Is there's a link in the description of the episode that will take you to a Spotify playlist where you can listen to not just these songs, but all the songs from our previous episodes as well. So make sure that you uh, check that out. And I think it is time to finally start talking about these songs. Let's get into the first one, the leading track off of their big breakthrough record, Obzen. And that is Combustion. Combustion. I would say probably one of the simplest songs they've ever written. And yeah. yet and yet it still has so much dimension to it. In a weird way, I can see a lot of parallels. Like we've already mentioned this many times, but with our Dream Theater episode and how like this is a compared to the other songs this is actually pretty normal right that it's just it's good solid metal yeah but it's still very much them uh-huh so this is this is one that i think can be it's it's deceptively simple but i i guess you could say it's it's secretly complex Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, I didn't know this until I I was uh, watching a YouTube analysis of this song, and someone pointed this out, and this was this was one of those brain explosion moments that I had when the song starts with that boom, that main riff. Our brains want to think that that's the one that starts on the one. And that when that hi-hat comes in, that where it sounds like it's off. It's that it's gone because it's pushed. Yeah, that it's pushed. Yep. If you actually change your perspective and you say that the um, that the riff actually starts on the uh of four, yep. so a 16th <laughs> note early, mm-hmm. to where the hi-hat actually um, comes in on the one, two, one, two, three, four – and that it's actually that crash coming in that is pushed yep. instead of a hi-hats, that what it does is when you get to the weird riff where it's doing that where it's got the, the, the different drum beat, mm-hmm. 
that it actually lines up with a one, two, three, mm-hmm. four, one, two, three, four. And when I learned that, I was just like, oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> because I just thought it was just they were just doing an off-kilter riff after doing the normal thrashy riff. Mm. Always thinking that the one started at where the riff begins. Weird. It, it never even, even this was like the first even, time I'd listened to the song in a long time and yeah. That never that had never even crossed my mind that that could be a possibility of how that song was to be listened to. Huh. I just I just always took for granted that the uh that the song Yeah, but what did you think that the hi-hats were doing? I just thought they were just they were throwing in something clever on top of a simple riff. <laughs> that, like right as the hi hats came in, I was like, "Oh, it's they tricked me." Yeah, yeah. yeah. One, two, Lu- one, Lucas two, three. Lucas is five. discovering syncopation. I just I don't know. I guess at the time that I had first listened to it, I was it still stuck. very simple, <laughs> and so it's just that was just the, always the way it. Like it didn't even. I didn't even entertain the fact that it could be syncopated. I just thought that they were just throwing in something weird just for just because they're like, oh, this this riff is really simple. So we need to have something, you know, zany in there. So people don't think that we're just writing a really, you know, simple song. Yeah, because all the kicks are on the eighth notes. Like I just I, straight eights. I know, but I, I just thought that it was snare leading. That it was the ba 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 ba. Oh like, no, you know, kick leading. Yeah, but oh, it's definitely kick leading. But then you realize it's kick leading. I know it's just. I don't. I don't know why I thought that way, but I just did. And so when I realized <laughs> that that's what was it was doing, I was just like, "Oh, Mashuga, look at you guys, <laughs> tricking <laughs> into thinking that this was your simple song when really there's there's something deeper going on." Which, Those are some of the best kind of songs, though. Oh yeah, like that's that's a song I never thought that I would I would find more depth to, and then here we are. But I figured that this would be this would be a good start for people that are metalheads trying to get into Meshuga because it's it's not too wild yet. It's right. you could you could almost see this as kind of like a thrash song. As far well, as actually, just, yeah. You know, yeah. just that 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 double time feel. That bat to bat to bat to bat to bat to bat to bat. The riff is very easy to understand, and um, you know, it's it's not really overtly like like you said. It was challenging me, but I didn't even realize it was challenging me. It's you know, it starts off by being uh, approachable. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, Mashuga, as always, has their has their hidden little um, their their secrets that they hide in the music. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I was saying earlier, Obzen kind of has a lyrical theme throughout, just talking about um, kind of just the the evil of man and kind of how we as a society have learned to accept and embrace it because almost kind of like a, um, a cynicism kind of like 
it's like it's it's not telling us like you know saying you know you think the world is that man is good but man is evil that's not what it's trying to say it's saying man is evil and we know it's evil and we continue to allow it to be kind of like you know saying like talking about the the complacency of the modern man of just going we know that everything around us is messed up and yet we have conditioned ourselves to to tolerate it and combustion is about the realization almost kind of like it's almost like a brainwashing how we've been we've been brainwashed into accepting everything that's around us accepting all the evil that's around us kind of almost like we have become um what's the word i'm uh desensitized mm-hmm. like we're like we're not in denial but it's just like we're just like yeah it is what it is and combustion mm-hmm. is all about kind of the narrator's decision to stop be- being a part of the system and really kind of almost um, becoming feeling again. It's the it's the combustion of the spirit. Ooh. I was uh, wondering what was the thing that was combusting. Yeah, because they never use the word combustion in the song. And so it's it's pretty much um pretty much just talking about how he's just like, you know, it's almost like their version of we're not gonna take it anymore. You know, <laughs> instead of instead of standing around and just being a part of the system it's time to fight this system it's time to to fight this evil and 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 try and be better people because the world is rotting and decaying and there's not enough tom morello for that yeah but of course (laughs) it's it's so very interestingly weaved around their very unique way of approaching their lyrics it's crazy that is not the message that I thought that this song would give. Mm-hmm. They are they're a band that usually always has something very interesting to say. Like they don't they're not like other metal bands that like just like to be like dark, evil, and gross for the sake of it. There's always if they if they ever go that direction, they always are. It's because they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to make you see an ugly truth. That's what a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of humanity in their lyrics. A surprising amount. The more I really evaluated their lyrics, I was shocked to see how many, like how many lessons they were trying to teach and how many real human experiences they were trying to, um, they were trying to convey so it's not their lyrics are not this transcendent like do they draw the connections for you i guess um no you overarching statements about life no they don't they don't really ever spell it out black and white but you know they leave enough for you to also have different interpretations in some instances. In this instance, in Combustion, it's pretty clear what they're saying. But in other songs, they kind of let you interpret it a little more. 
it's nice, I guess. So let's talk about what's going on musically. Um, Grant, listening to this, as as our more metal leaning um, co host, what what was standing out to you in this? Um, obviously, like when I first listened to all this stuff, it was very extreme vocally because it's like I don't usually listen to extreme metal. I'm more used to it now, but I had to get used to their sound. But as I listened through, you know, the song multiple times, I started to realize this was kind of the simple song. That's why I kind of said like, oh, this is the as I am of the of the set. Yeah. And it is like, you're right. It's very thrashy. The um, the riff is kind of heavy, you know, like heavy, like low tuning. Um, but it's almost the guitars are treated like a percussive instrument, uh-huh. you know, which is very not thrashy. Maybe like when you're chugging on like the the low note, but they're doing like some almost like slap guitar kind of sounding stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's not like the super – it's not super extreme experimental or anything. No, and I, 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 I didn't want to completely go right into the deep end in the very first song. There's going to kind of be a, a gradient to – Oh, for sure. To kind of, you know, it's like – because the the the, the Meshuggah waters go very deep, and if and mm-hmm. if you're going to introduce someone to Meshuggah, you don't want to just throw them into the deep end. You want to you want to you want to lead them there in steps, and that's kind of my goal with this set. This is the kiddie pool. Yes, this is this is this is <laughs> something to where if you're a thrash person, you can hear this and go, okay, I get this. I, I yeah, this feels familiar. The the double time kick snare. Um, you know, is very familiar mm-hmm. to a metalhead, especially someone who listens to Slayer, you know, or listens to a lot of early Metallica. It's like this is that's that's bread and butter of thrash. Yeah. So, what did you think of the guitar solo and of Frederick Thorndale's solo playing? It was not atonal, but no, it, it was in a it was in a different. Like if you if you didn't really um, try to listen to it uh, critically, you'd say it's pretty atonal, but it isn't. It's in like a weird major mode. It's like in like Phrygian or something. Yeah, it doesn't quite conform. I think kind of in the theme of the song, it doesn't quite conform to the um, measure markings like you usually would in a solo. And I actually like it when guitar solos do that a lot. Um, that's why I think Eddie Van Halen is such a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. solo wise um he never really stuck to exact measure markings and you really kind of can't for a song like this uh it does sound kind of like crazy and wild but at the same time very technical which is like a fine line yeah that that i think was drawn and and kept to very well all right, Ethan. What what were you uh, pulling from this song? I love the like whenever it like breaks open and it's more. Oh yeah, that that yeah. second riff. Yeah, the second riff that they play. Whenever they whenever they open up to that, it feels so good. Yeah, that's what groove metal is all about, right there. Yeah, that's that's the more that's the more typical gent 
uh, riff, mm-hmm. where this is this is uh, you know the first the the majority of the song is is unusually thrashy for this. I also I think this is a song where I'll probably come back because I I want to I'm still unable to hear that guitar line properly. It keeps tricking my ear and making me hear the one on the upbeats. Yeah, whenever whenever it initially comes in. Like even though I know, like even listening back to it now, I I found a trick to be able to count back in properly. Like I could play this song probably full on full all the way through on drums, but I I have to like cheat code my way through. I can't I'm not hearing it like naturally in my ear. Uh-huh. But yeah, the like that second riff is good, and I even think that like whatever that riff is, it's a cool riff. Yeah, I I specifically love the part when it when it when everyone cuts out and it goes back to the riff, but it's like yeah. heavier version of it. It's kind of like mm. it hits in, you're just like, oh yeah, it's on now. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, this this song uh, I think was very is was the perfect song to start off that record in particular because this was their big breakthrough record, which is crazy because it's like their I want to say their one two three four it's their fifth album overall, not counting the, the EPs that they had released. Mm-hmm. There was there was like you know five or six EPs in between those. So as far as, you know, actual official releases, it's like their ninth or tenth. And, oh wow, they released a lot of EPs. <laughs> oh yeah. They had they had just about an EP between every album. Oh my goodness. And each and the EPs never feel like throwaway. It's always like they're they're significant artistic statements. Hmm. And they're always experimental in nature. Good. Stuff that they would be like, we won't, you know, put this on a full record, but we'll make an EP to give you guys something interesting. (laughs) Although they had not done EP in a very long time, and it makes me sad. But they might. Maybe. I would love it if they did. (laughs) Okay. So I think I think we're officially ready to move on to the next song. Let's let's go into let's go into the real pool this time. Yes, to perpetual black second. All this right. this song is off of their fourth album called mm-hmm. Nothing. This is kind of like the this is the turning point in Meshuggah's career because this is the album before Obzen, but this is really where you could say the Meshuggah sound is really cemented. But at the time, nothing, nothing is now kind of viewed as almost the quintessential Meshuggah record, either that or Obzen. Those are kind of like the two like holy grail records for Meshuggah. But at the time, this was a very bold record to make because when you look at all of their stuff through the 90s, it has a lot more in common with songs like Combustion where they're, they have a lot more speed to them, a lot more raw aggressiveness to it. 
they don't it's not a lot of the slower more methodical uh polyrhythmic uh menace which i feel like now mashuga is more known for mm-hmm. um but nothing was kind of just the uh the moment where really mashuga became mashuga fully and every record they've done since then has had nothing embedded in its DNA. It's the first okay. it's the first record that they used um uh the eight string guitars. Ah, okay. Which, that makes sense. Which has a big deal to do on why um it helped to mold their sound. Now there's actually even two versions of this album. Because originally, their whole vision for this album was to record it with eight-string guitars. But at the time that they were recording, they um, the manufacturers were delaying on getting it finished. And so they couldn't record it with the eight-string guitars. So they just did it with <laughs> E-Tune seven strings. Oh, man. And that Shit, ended up man. becoming the official release of the album was in that uh, – in that format. And so then a couple years later, when they finally got those guitars, they actually re-recorded the album. And and, and that's the version that's on the yes, playlist. Right? The, the blue cover is the re-recorded. The orange cover is the original. Ooh, cool. And I personally think that uh, it sounds better with the real eight-string guitars. Oh, yeah. But every I'm, but everything else is the same. So the you know the drums and the vo- obviously they don't have to worry about changing the vocals. Right. There's no melody to account for because there is a slight bit of a difference in the pitch. It doesn't sound quite the same between the seven string and the eight string. But you know they don't really they don't except for in a couple of very small changes. Um. And one really big change when we'll get to the worst songs section in our after hours. They really Ooh. keep the songs exactly the same. Okay. Um, so Perpetual Black Second is really actually maybe the fastest song on the album. Wow. Or is speed. Like really the whole song is more meant kind of on these do do ba do 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 like more like very mid-tempo plodding songs more of just like kind of experimenting with slowness almost like an entire album of sad but trues yeah that's where it's 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 still enormously heavy but it's heavy more in the 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 heaviness rather than in the speed and the aggression. Yeah. This is this is maybe the more furious cut on the record. But I do think that it's one of the best. Oh, I didn't even tell you guys where combustion sat on the, oh, yeah. the on the ranked playlist. It's kind of important. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me pull it up real quick. Um, I put combustion at. Um, I put it at 12. Okay. And I put Perpetual Black Second at 14. 
So we went down. Yeah, but barely. They've got a very strong, uh, you know, top 50. Wow. Top 50. They're, they're, their divide closes pretty quickly from their bad to their oh. good. How many songs? Um, there are. There's not. It's not a lot. It is um ninety two. Okay. Only eight okay. and a half hours of music. Only eight and a half. Yeah. Compared to some others. That's okay. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. So, um, so yeah, this this song I think has kind of become really a, an underrated song off of that album. There's there's other songs that get more attention, like Rational Gaze, Stenga, Straws Pulled at Random. Those those songs tend to be the more uh, critically adored songs. But I think that Perpetual Black Second is an underdog on being one of the best songs on that album. Mm. It got such a a a strange rhythm. And this really starts to show the brilliance of Thomas Heike on the drums. Being able to consistently play that that changing rhythm while staying 4/4 on his hands. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good point. Oh, my Lord. It's crazy. I don't even know what they're doing. Yeah, because the way that they write riffs, when most other people write riffs in odd time signatures, it's it always has a definitive end point before everything starts over. Where mm-hmm. what's happening with them is they're always playing polyrhythms, where the hands are usually always playing in 4-4, and you have something else really, really weird that is kind of like is doing its own thing and moving at its own pace. And the time signature is determined on when the two finally meet up together. And so that's kind of the way that you always approach it. But like if you wanted to really, you know, be smart and you say just like what what time signature does Meshuggah play in? They always play in four four. I mean, really, they do. Kind of. Kind of. But that's, it's, it's, it's no it's simple statement, but that's what, that's what Thomas always says, tells people. He's just like, I don't get why people try and come up with all these weird time signatures. In my mind, I'm always playing in 4-4. They actually don't, um, because of the way that they songwrite, they actually don't do a lot of mathematical calculation as far as like going, okay, so... I have this riff and it's playing this much, which means if we do the math, it'll line up on this. They just, when they plug it into the computer, they kind of just look at whatever measure it matches them and go, okay, that's where we're going to cut it off. (laughs) Okay. And so the view they have of it is that they're just, they're playing in four, four. I love the, that later, the riff after the weird guitar, like, uh-huh. How oh yeah, that. Do 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 do. Because the rhythm, 
it, it's not landing right on the downbeat. It's landing like a 16th note afterwards on the first time and then a 16th note right before on the second time. And it yeah, yeah and where it's very stuttered. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, that's that's a great riff. So lyrically in this song, the perpetual black second is about the torture of someone having to relive the worst moment of their life. Pretty much the song is about crippling regret. It's oh wow. It's about it's about um the uh the continuous rerun of my own violence. It's about doing something that you regret and having that replay in your mind over and over and over again and you can't get it out of your head. Oh, it's pretty dark. <laughs> So, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's about, uh, just the regret and, um, you know, trapped in a ceaseless fever of spite, an unending fit of resentment and anger caught in a moment of unforgiveness and a snapshot of a hate filled second. Mm hmm. And so saying that it only takes one second to do something terrible, but you have – it can haunt you for an eternity. One second can change your life. One second can completely shatter your entire mental state. Now, one second can stretch for an eternity. Wow. Wow, okay. One single image frame I wish to forget, now replayed in succession of millions. One second I will always regret my hell found in its reiteration. Okay, yeah, this is like... See, I'm glad that we have the six songs segment and actually talk about the songs because if we had not talked about this, I would not have thought that (laughs) Perpetual Black Second was anything more than like Ooh, what's the darkest like title we can come up with? Perpetual Black Second. Man, that sounds so dull. Drop it. That's like I don't know. I kind of like that it's like it means something. Yeah. And and Yen's his vocal in this does feel like he is someone that is in torment. Mm-hmm. I mean, those those screams. Let's let's talk about Yen's screaming. And just his approach to it. Because I think that he is one of the greatest to ever do it. Oh, I think so too. It's it sounds like it's a full spectrum. Like he's using his full on this song is his vocal doubled voice everything. He's what, Ethan? Is his vocal being doubled on this song? No. He doesn't double his vocals ever. He just it he just goes for it. When you hear him, when you hear him live, it's the same. Wow. And also, I've seen behind-the-scenes footage of him in the studio. It's as powerful. Wow. So it's pretty much, it's pretty much dry. Yeah. That's just the way it is. I mean, there's, there's some effects added to it, but... Well, yeah, to make it mix, but, yeah. but not to make it sound better. No. No, that is, that is him. His... And this is also the first record where I would say his scream reaches its full maturity. 
Because in the 90s, especially in the early 90s, you can't scream at all. As you get closer to the end of the 90s, you can feel the scream evolving and getting stronger. And nothing is the first record where it's like, it's perfectly ferocious. Because you normally, normally you have two sets of screamers. You've got either the people that do the really low guttural, you know, the your most of your death metal, like Opeth would fit in that category of someone that it's really deep and really demonic sounding. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the high pitch screamers, the shriekers, someone like um, Chuck in Sound of Perseverance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's 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 or um, that's where Phil Anselmo will go when he goes into that bobcat really? like like a lot of great Southern trend kill when he goes like, uh, that high pitch screeching. Oh yeah, you know think of thinking of like you know Suicide Note Part Two when he's doing the when he's doing the kind of the groovier parts. Uh huh. Maybe I do like that kind of screaming more than. But I can't. Put... But Jens sits in the middle. It's almost like a, exactly. it's a mid scream. It's it's got so much deep end, but it also has such a loudness and a power. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds like he's actually just yelling in your face. Yeah, it almost to me. It always has felt like a roaring lion, mm. like a like a like a beast yeah something that um or like a like a like a dragon so some 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 kind of ferocious beast that it, that has a very intimidating war cry yeah it, it, it's less of a scream almost more of a roar when i'm listening to it i'm picturing like his entire like throat from like nose all the way down to his core is being just Use, oh yeah! Ever, like, ever use the studio? He doesn't stand at a mic, uh, boom like, you know, say I did whenever I was doing our when we were doing our cover songs. Does he do the hand? He does handheld, and he and he walks around the studio as he's singing. That's some of the some of the best vocalists do that. Does he? Uh, does he record with loudspeakers? Uh, no, with headphones. Yeah, headphones. Ah, man. Some of the best vocalists will record with the handheld, which is which really is kind of counterintuitive if you think about it because it's it's very uncontrollable and you also get that handling noise. But you can't hear it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Phil did that on um uh Far Beyond Driven, right? And he actually his screams and this is something that's very different from from Yen, is that Phil uh, screams are actually very quiet in the studio, mm-hmm. and they just get get it mixed just so he sounds very aggressive. But if you're telling me that like he sounds like this naturally, like that this it's this intimidating in person, that's really impressive. Oh yeah, like because that's, I mean that's very it rare. looks like his face is going to explode every time he's doing it. All the veins come forward. Uh, his so red like you can tell that it's he's not just doing it quietly and they're magnifying it like it is a full he puts his full body into it 
I like that. And so I just, I think, and also I've never heard people be able to hold out screams the way he does. I, he's got some incredible lungs, but we'll get it. We'll get into some of his really great, uh, screams whenever we get into some of the later songs in this set. <laughs> um but yeah, and so uh the I I don't know if you could call it a guitar solo or just like a guitar moment, like how Ethan you were describing that weird the those are very um those are more of your normal Frederick Thorntondale solo moments. He, the solo that you hear on Combustion is actually a very rare kind of solo for him. He's usually not a soloer in the traditional sense. And, um, okay. His, uh, his actually, his favorite guitarists are jazz guitarists. They, uh, the whole band is very much a fan of jazz fusion. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because so are you. <laughs> that's that would make it funny. <laughs> um, but wouldn't expect it. This is a this kind of section is very normal for Frederick. A, a lot of if you're going to get a a Meshuggah solo, there it's more likely that that's the kind of solo you're going to get. Something that's very fast. That's not meant to be like hummable or melodic but it's meant to more be this unnerving texture almost like tom morello but darker yeah i kind of got that vibe at least from this one you know and the fact that it's like oh what cool sounds can i like come up with like you're not going to sing a tom morello solo either and and you're but from on the other side you're not going to sing a slayer solo but that's for a completely different reason uh-huh. right just because they're not good but that's another discussion <laughs> did you guys ever play doom oh i still play doom i played it the other day this song reminds me of that soundtrack yeah that's that soundtrack was pretty great but a better but better but better I, I was literally playing uh, Doom like three days ago on my Switch. Classic Doom. Can't tell if you were just singing Doom or Master of Puppets. Well, it's because it's a Master of Puppets ripoff. <laughs> yeah, all of it is just Metallica ripoffs. I'm okay with yeah. that. But uh, Anything else on this song you guys wanted to bring up? Like that, uh, the, the ending little jam that we end with? I think we should. I think we should get up to you know, get up to our waist in the waters. Yes. Move on to the next song. Oh, new millennium cyanide Christ. That's a what name. a freaking name. So, <laughs> what what does that mean? Then? So this song is it's about a couple of things. The main thing is about the nature of humanity, and about how specifically. Uh, religions try to perfect man to try and take away all of humanity's flaws about kind of you know just working your way to become a better person trying to become perfect as well as the um, 
the the alluringness of dangerous cult leaders. So this song is about a man that tries to become what is in his mind the perfect human. But what actually okay. does is he turns himself into this horribly grotesque deformation of man. What he thinks he's doing that will make him perfect is actually making him more vile and repulsive. In what ways? Wow. Oh god, let me let me pull up the specific lyrics cuz they this these are uh, it's it's some pretty insane stuff but again this is these are the kinds of things the uh, that like a normal metal band would just do just because it's like oh look how brutal that is um, mm-hmm. I rearrange my pathetic tissue I incise I replace I'm reformed uh, self-inflicted fractures I replace my bones with bars uh, my receiving eyes exchanged with fuses, blindness induced to prevent destruction, ceramic blades implanted past my ribs to save me from the dews of inhalation. I tear my worldly useless skin, staples to pin it over my eyes. Non-receptive of ungodly sounds, I disable the audio generators of fear. Hexagonal bolts to fill my mouth, sharpened to deplete. The creator of all violence. Without speech, there will be no deceit. Wow. So pretty much, he's he's in very um, in very visceral and um, violent and disturbing ways. He's getting rid of what he thinks are the things that destroy man. The he's trying. He's getting rid of uh, fear. He's getting rid of the eyes that so easily lead you to corruption. He's getting rid of the mouth that constantly lies. He He's mm-hmm. doing what he thinks will uh, take him to the ultimate form of perfection, but he doesn't realize that what he's doing is making himself less human and therefore making him more repulsive. Kind of, or he's just cosplaying as Vic Rattleson. Yeah. Uh, that's what it sounded like to me yeah um but the whole the whole message of the song is that that it's humanity's flaws that make them perfect that Hmm. once you start to remove the things that make us human you're not human anymore you've become something else something that is imitating humanity and now the whole, then the final mm. moment of the song is now that he's completed his transformation. Now he's going to become this this religious figure. Follow me. Follow my example. I am the new millennium Christ. I have achieved perfection, but he's he is no Christ. He is this this dangerous, deformed, anti-human. Wow. Behold, a sacrificial erase, a cleansing worshiping of pain, the new millennium Christ here to redeem all from lies. Disciples, come join with me to save a failed humanity. That's pretty, that's both dark and actually like, not cryptic, What's insightful. but like, it's got a lot of hidden, not okay, not hidden meaning. Well, it's it's insightful and it's right. Um, that's what I mean. It's insightful and 
it's a, I feel like it's um it's a little bit tongue in cheek to say it in this way to go to this extreme to yeah. to get the point across, which I guess is the point. Yeah, I think it's almost yeah. in a way they're almost parodying like all the death metal bands that are just like coming up with all these like disgusting uh, ways of like you know vi- all these violent lyrics, but it's just like they're using it to get a point across. Yeah. Well, I think that's the. I think they're using the brutality of it to call attention to. It's like, yes, do your eyes lead you to sin? Yes, do your ears lead you to fear? Yes, does your mouth tell lies? Yes, does your you know? It's like all of these things that could cause you to stumble. It's like, you know, it's like, are you really going to get rid of all of those things and then like look at it now? You know? Uh huh. I think it's like again. I think it's insightful. So, Good insight. So the song sure. is off of the Chaos Fear album. The one that I was saying earlier is just like it's very it's a very unique Meshuga record. If you notice, the mix is very different in this song. It's a mm-hmm. lot it's, it's a lot noisier, a lot um it's almost grimier sounding. I actually kind of like I it. I really more. like it too. Yeah. Um the it's it kind of reminds me of the eighty. It fits the music of that record. It would that mix would not have worked on the songs from their other albums, but the songs that they wrote for this album, that sound works for. Um, this this is definitely a faster uh, Meshuggah song, but it's still got that intense rhythmic complexity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, that that, that whole outro. That outro riff to, like, is jam along magnificent. Oh yeah, we He's have two fade outs in a row now, which is not something I'd expect. But also, they are the way you've mm-hmm. described them. They sound very studio centric. So, but fade outs aren't sense. like. I think for them it depends on the song. Yeah, I mean, ideally that's what it it should be, but a lot of people, you know, particularly myself, are biased towards live endings because it just it has the feeling of uh-huh. you actually listening to the song live. And you know, I I am one of those people who thinks that. So obviously there's some sympathy there towards like, or I I tend to appreciate songs with live endings more. That's why when I notice that there's a band that I'm like, ooh, this is a really good song. And then it has a fade out. I'm like, interesting choice, you know? And it's like, how would they have ended it other than than the fade out? Now, obviously it was a good choice because they made it onto this list. And it's not like, the fade outs were bad it's not like when the fade out started i was like oh man they could have done something better there it felt like the fade outs were tasteful mm-hmm. even though we've had two in a row yeah um let's talk about that freaking scream at the end it is a bad as a bone chilling scream um uh, especially the fact that you think that you've heard the scream <laughs> when he when he when he says they're here to redeem from all lies and he does that first one and just the, everything just amps up. The, 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 that, that 
that creepy melody, that brown, brown, wow, now. I remember hearing that for the first time, going, "Whoa, that was a pretty cool scream." And then the second one started, and I was just like, "Oh, oh God, oh my God, what, what is happening?" <laughs> it's that that scream is terrifying, but just again in a way that is amazing. Like I was saying in the in the previous song, in Chaos Fear, you can hear that his scream is not at its full maturity yet. If you, I don't know if you noticed in the song, but he's he his scream doesn't have the fullness yet. It's still you can still hear a bit of his natural voice in it. Like he's 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 struggling a little more to get the grittiness out, but it doesn't it doesn't impede the yeah. song at all but i think it's interesting to hear that the next album is nothing and all of a sudden now it's just and of, of course it's it's a almost a five-year period in between but you can definitely tell mm-hmm. that he really worked on just getting his screen perfect between that because it makes this huge leap forward but I, I still like how his voice sounds throughout this record. But it's like you can tell that it's not quite where it is going to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I kind of like early. This is this may be an un- unpopular opinion. I understand that. But I tend to like the earlier records of a band because the vocalist sounds a lot younger and they'll tend to do um, crazier things and experiment a little bit more because they haven't really experienced bad, you know, mm-hmm. vocal technique damage, right? Like, like that's why Cowboys from Hell is so fun to listen to because, like, Phil still can do the high squeals and the high notes, and it. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's like. It's not as heavy. The composition's not quite as um, developed. They're not mature as musicians, but that kind of is appealing in and of itself is that they're not mature musicians yet, mm-hmm. and so they can kind of do some really wacky stuff and do some really off-kilter stuff that you can you can look at and be like, man, they really got better and still appreciate the fact that that older stuff made you appreciate the newer. It's complicated, but I just like earlier, earlier yeah. songs from bands because of, because of Ethan, uh, what were you pulling from this song? What's, what was sticking out to you? I love that in drift. Like the second that we, even in the song, whenever we got to that in drift, I immediately connected with like mm-hmm. that rhythmic thing that they're doing the down 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 like it's like the repetition that it has i also like the the part right before that like during the scream the boom no 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 like how they're just like pretty much like drag tripleting out in this weird way you know like that weird polyrhythm like throughout that whole thing. I think it's interesting that the song is very fast and very complicated throughout it until it gets to that final verse 
and then all of a sudden it slows down and simplifies. Yeah. I think that it's like the song is almost yeah. like it's conditioning you to feel like it's going to be in this mode, and then it just completely turns. I think almost in the sense that because the entire time that it is chugging and being super complex, it's him building his body. And as soon as his transformation is complete, it switches musically. Almost like the work is done, and yeah. now, um, almost like the uh, the music is representative of yeah. the machine that is putting him together. the The work that he is doing to himself, and now that the work is complete, he does. There's not as much frantic energy. It's this. It's this more ominous groove. Yeah, especially whenever he opens up to the lies scream and they go from chugging that rhythmic thing uh, into like big and the open. line, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mo- and more melodic. And Grant, Grant, what yeah, was what was song. where were the highlights for you? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I agree with Ethan. The outro is kind of cool. It was super like. It threw me off a lot because, like, you know, it is in 4-4, but it also does some really weird off-time but not off-time stuff. And those are always the most fun things to listen to is because, like, it's 4-4 so you can, like, headbang to it. But also it's like you can't really tap your feet to it, so you have to really think about it. Um, I liked the, like, the reverby guitar, like, um, creepy melodic things. Right. It was something I think that's like the first real instance we have in this set. And when it came in, I was like, ooh, this is like a color I wasn't expecting. And it's I think it's the first of the many colors that I wasn't expecting throughout this set. And we get into mm-hmm. some really crazy ones the further we go. But I mean, already with this one, I'm like, hmm, you know, yep. Something I didn't think I was going to experience. This, I think that this is the the big left turn in the set. Where, especially when it gets to that that end section of this song, because it's like up until this point, everything, yes, we're kind of starting to get into some more complex musical ideas, but you almost feel like the feeling is the same until that moment. That's when you mm-hmm. realize it's not just going to be tons of aggressive riffing, but all of a sudden now we start to shift into songs that have these crazy mood changes. And the and these atmospheres that they're going to start making. Oh yeah. And I think that this song is kind of like the, it's the culmination of the first half and at the same time setting us up for the yeah. really wild ride. We're going to get on the second half as well as the, the, I'm ready um, for that wild ride. I feel like the tension is starting to increase here because this is a much more aggressive song yet at the same time, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more ominous dread that you can feel, and that's going to carry into the next song, yeah. where you just feel this ferociousness continuing to build. It's not just like your typical heavy metal aggression. There's this, um, this, there's this fury that's continuing to build in the music. This, this unspeakable. Uh, undescribable rage that's just inherent in the music that they're playing. And that's kind of the path that I'm wanting to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, I put this at number five on the ranked playlist. 
Ooh, okay, okay. I like that. I would agree that this is the best. So now we get into the hurt that finds you first. The the way that the drums are mixed on this, the drums sounded like they were like an R&B drum sample. Interesting. At the beginning. Like, oh, I said to and I was expecting like, what a left turn that would have been. Or it sounds like the yeah, yeah, not even. It's close. like the same snare sound, though. So this song, I kind of, mm-hmm. it's going to serve a lot of purposes in the set, um, but this is going to, this is kind of meant to be a distorted mirror image of combustion, where we're getting into the first song of the back half of this set, and it's it's once again got that thrashy groove to it, but it doesn't have that that almost like classic metal feel to it where combustion almost feels like a classic riff. It, this one has so much uh, more, um, yeah. so much more power and much more um, aggression behind it. And I think, I think the title really describes the feeling right. of the music first. This song feels like it's something that is hunting you down. It's. It feels like you're running from something, and you can feel this lumbering monster just like find trying to find you. So this so song is about is the about? Um, the the hurt being the the maliciousness <laughs> of the higher ups in society, the corporations, the. I guess you could almost say like the Illuminati, the people that pull the strings. That it's the whole thing is about once you're in, into the circle, you can never tell anyone, you can never go back. Kind of like the whole thing is this threat of punishment. If ever you, you know, break the code, if you ever tell people what we're really up to, we will find you and we will destroy you. It's the it's I like the, me a good conspiracy theory. You know, it's the it's the reveling in the power that you have over someone. It's the it's the mm-hmm. it's the the threat of destruction, but it's coming from someone that that very much holds the power, but at the same time is inviting you into their world. And the way that it's framed feels like it's it's in yeah. like the corporation world. But it's kind of like you you enter that secret mm-hmm. world where the real higher ups are into all of the messed up stuff, you know, and pretty much just kind mm-hmm. of like the it's your it's the feeling of being cursed with knowledge, and pretty much them telling just like you know Ooh. this this knowledge comes at a price. It comes with you know you will always have this fear of if if you ever cross us, if you ever reveal our secrets you know, everything that you ever have loved and hold dear will be destroyed. We, you should fear us more than anything else in this world. 
we are the hurt that fight you first. Oh my goodness. And this song is relentless. Oh my lord. It, it, it bled. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love the Tom hits at like at about the halfway point. Yeah. Like it just kind of so, changes. So let's really talk harsh. about how we get to that it's point. Awful. Because really, to me, this is as, as amazing as the first half is. What really elevates the song to like that amazing level is that sudden shift that happens at about at a little over the halfway point. Yeah. Where all of a sudden it just turns into this huge atmospheric wash of terror and and tension. Like cuz yeah, it's I think especially when it mm-hmm. um when it switches to that halftime you can tell that the song is is yeah. moving a, towards something different. Yeah, it's not going to be a verse chorus, you know, returning back to riffs that the that the song is turning in a different direction. And it goes into the hits that and you're just like, OK, but then as soon as the guitars change and it goes to the to the atmospheric lines. And and then especially when it switches mm-hmm. to just the singular Tom hits that that wash of sound is just so incredible and so um i'm running out of words to describe these <laughs> generic good word but also just generic again this, this feeling of of uneasiness Right. It musically sounds great. It mm-hmm. musically just is pleasing to the ear, but also unsettling. It does to feel the almost mind. like, um, like there's this there's this unspeakable evil that could be lurking around any corner. Mm-hmm. Especially with the the uh-huh. low drum hits that come back in at the very end. You know, they're like doom. Which that doom, rhythm also is doom, doom, amazing. Doom, doom, you know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I it's weird that you like you ended the last song with saying, Ooh, we've had this unrelenting aggression, but now we're gonna move into something that's a little bit different. And then this yeah. song starts with unrelenting aggression. But but for the last uh-huh. half of the song, it's like it kind of deceives you a little bit because the first half of the song is that like intensity. And then, like Ethan said, that it's that change up with the toms. And then the last half of the song is like this that creepy vibe that we were just talking about. And it's very interesting how they got there because it's it's something that is like it's very complex how they did it, but to a to the ear to the casual listener i guess casual listener you're probably not listening to the hurt that finds you first but you know what i mean right like to somebody who kind of turns their brain off when they listen to music it flows nicely which is like that's the secret sauce to onion music is (laughs) i'm gonna start using that now onion music is that it's like 
you can turn your brain off and it makes sense and you can turn your brain on and it makes more sense you know it's like you you can't it's like i'm listening all the way through finally and i promised myself i wouldn't reference this during the episode but i have to because it's relevant i'm finally listening all the way through um everywhere at the end of time right the caretaker everywhere at the end of time and i just hit like the like four hour mark or something it's like a six and a half hour piece right and that's one of those that's one of those things where i had to like sit down and decide okay i'm gonna listen to this section of it because it's like, oh, you know, there are great parts to it that I really enjoy. And especially for like the last four and a half hours that it's like really weird, really experimental. And it's really more like focused on sound than music. And if you didn't listen to the first two hours, it would make pretty much zero sense. Um, to me, it's making zero sense, even though I had listened to the first two hours. But that's that's one of those things that's confirming my theory that like, mixing is just as important to emotions as composition and performance and lyrics but you also have to kind of sit down and tell yourself okay i'm going to listen to this song okay i'm going to try to find the connections that are being made you have to kind of work for it with that it's worth it if you put the work in and put the mental work in but for you know the hurt that finds you first you know and especially the next song you know, it's like, if you don't put the work in, you're still going to get something out. But the more you put in, the more you get out. And that's what I mean by the secret sauce. That was a really long-winded way of saying, okay. Ethan, it's a great song. Um, <laughs> what, what emotions was this bringing out in you, especially when it gets into the second half of the... Yeah. It, the second half was the part that I loved. It was just it's simple, you know? But it it does it did a good job of setting up the you know, the ominous, you know, the ominousness, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially after so much I guess more thrashiness, you know. Um yeah, it just as I was listening to it, I was like, okay, we got to, you know, it's like one of these, like the, the types of songs where I'm like, okay, I was, I was more, really looking forward you know, like to imagine you guys listening to this and going, okay, here's, here's Thrash the song. And then you guys hearing that section, your ears kind of perking up going, wait a minute. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Cause that's exactly what that, happened. That is pretty much what happened. Yeah. Cause I was like, okay. And I, I saw that the song was like, you know, five and a half minutes or whatever. And then whenever we went and got into like the hits, you know, I was like, Oh, that's cool. And then it just like stops, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it took a second to register with me. It's like, this is a band that's named Mashuga. The first three songs we had were pretty intense. Why are we doing this weird reverby delay, clean guitar thing? But like, also we got here without, there ever being like a sudden change and it's like it makes logical sense that we're here you know i see what you mean ethan about like the first half sets it up because 
had the song started with that low ominous yeah it wouldn't have been the same it would not even it'd have a completely different vibe it'd sound more like an intro than a song all right well i uh put this song at number 10 on the list And so oh, now right. okay. we're going to move on to the uh, the the, jug, the juggernaut of the set. The fifth, the big so fifth song. This is separated as three songs, but I'm counting this all as one big song. And really, even this is still a smaller part yeah. of a larger song. Yeah. This is part of that uh, 42 minute suite that I was talking about uh, with Catch 33. So this. This is really just one, I would say, of one of four distinct chapters of that suite. So the first song is Mind's Mirror, and I, I need you to tell me what. So the whole theme of uh, Catch 33 is the. Um, is dealing with the, the paradox of life. Because as you guys know, it's 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 a playing on Catch Twenty Two, which is all about paradoxes, and so this is mm-hmm. about a man. And this this gets really really strange, but also at the same time very fascinating. The whole song takes you through this journey of a man that spends his entire life trying to understand the ununderstandable. He's trying to find the meaning of life. He's trying to decipher the mysteries of existence. And in the process, Mm -hmm. he dies. And he is confronted with the afterlife. And the afterlife continues to to not only show him more contradictions, but starts to turn him into a contradiction. And he ends up finding himself in this nightmare hellscape where he has become the prey of these uh, of these demonic figures that um, that are constantly hunting his soul. And because he is in the afterlife, he can never die, but he is in constant pain every time that they find him. It's almost like these these demons are playing a game. Of just like kind of like of of hunting souls, and he his soul burns brighter because he's trying to fight the inherent contradiction of his existence, and so he ends up at the very end realizing that the his entire struggle is with himself. It's not with him trying to. The more he struggles, the more he suffers. And he realizes that he is the reason for his own failure. And when he accepts it, he expects that he'll be set free, but instead he ends up becoming trapped within his own lies. He ends up becoming... He's a prisoner that can't escape. And so... The yeah. the suite is and throughout the whole thing it's littered with contradictory statements. And Mind's Mirrors contains a lot of great um paradoxes. Um to live through one's own shadow, mute and blinded is to really see 
um, the feeding frenzy on my starving soul. Um, and just kind of, this is the point where he is making the transition from from his death to this afterlife. So this is the third chapter of this suite. Uh, this this three song uh, combination. Okay. So um, this is the moment where it's almost like this is this is the one moment of kind of peace throughout the whole set until the very very end um where it's almost like this it's this it's this serenity but it's also there's this demented ugliness behind it like hearing the vocorder is very shocking mm-hmm. i don't know if it shocked you guys whenever you heard it the first time oh Oh yes, and you were probably is. at first just like, "What the heck is yes. this?" I had no, I had no idea. Like that's something that you put on like mm-hmm. an early '80s record, right? And it's like, "Ooh, watch what quirky thing we can do!" Wah wah wah, you know? It's but creepy. I ooh, it sounded good though. It was like, well. I'm kind of like one of those people when I listen to music and I hear something that's creepy or weird, my first response is to be fascinated oh, I'm with same how way. they yeah. made it that way. And so, yeah, yeah. And so when I first heard it, I was like, ooh, that's creepy. That's really cool that it's creepy, you know? And I just, I don't know. That was like, that was the point in the set where I'm like, hmm, Meshuggah mm-hmm. is actually a force to be reckoned with in my personal musical journey. So the Minds Mirrors segment is the, 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 vo- the vocoder part is kind of like the, um, it's kind of like his, his official transition from life to death. And then you all, then you have this slow repeating guitar line that, that just, that just stretches. But then, if you notice, all of a sudden the bass starts to slowly mm-hmm. get louder, louder, and you mm-hmm. realize that once you realize it is the tension, you start to notice the tension in the guitar line, and then all of a sudden it starts speeding up, and then it comes mm-hmm. in with that just that horrendous yet amazing uh, blur of noise. And I think that this is the exact moment that he wakes up mm-hmm. in the new in the hellscape. That's just what I'm going to call it. This is this is the this is this this is your welcome to hell moment, mm-hmm. which is probably exactly what it would sound like. The entrance to hell probably would sound just like that. <laughs> and then once the second section of in death is life begins, it's kind of like all of a sudden now you know everything has come into focus and you know it's it's him trying to um figure out where he is what's going on um and him realizing the situation that he's now in 
so eminently visible, this cloaked innocent guild, mm-hmm. sentenced to a lifetime, a second of structure chaos, trampled by the ferocious raging crowds of solitude. I'm the soil beneath me, soaking up the sustenance of my own death, extradited to the gods of chance, the deities of all things random, mm. alive, multicolored, twitching in their dead monochrome world. So not only wow. is he furthering the story, but he's also using all these different contradictory statements. Alive and multicolored in a dead monochrome world. The gods of chance, the deities of things random. The whole point of deity is that it isn't random. I am the soil beneath me. Trampled by raging crowds of solitude. It's just it's 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 all these things that inherently don't make sense. Yet at the same time, he's in a world that that lives on contradiction. It's become his hell. His whole point of his life was to try and eliminate chaos. And now he's been put into an afterworld where chaos is the is the actual ingredient that makes the entire world exist. What what worse place could he find himself wow. in as someone that was seeking answers and order mm-hmm. to be put in some place where someone like him that is fighting to create order out of chaos becomes such an obvious prey for these gods of, of chance. Yeah. This is like a legitimate like Oh, but the real nightmare begins Lord. once you get to In Death is Death. So In Death is Death oh is the hunt. Let's get there. Okay. <laughs> I think to I mean there's really not too many oh, lyrics. It I think to like just read through too. them will be the most meaningful way because even still I'm I'm continuing to pull back layers of what's really going on here. But it's uh, It says, iridescent to the searching eyes, mm-hmm. I'm all things vivid in a world of gray, so easily spotted, so easily claimed in this domain where all is prey. My thoughts are radiant beacon to the omnidirectional hunter god radar. I'm a marker light of flesh to these subconscious carnivores. I am them. I am teeth. I'm their arousal at the kill. Feasting on self, a schizo-reality warp, the contradiction fulfilled. Focus, the only means to see my back to life's unending swirl, a reversal of passing away as the world of dead, as away is now my origin. (laughs) Wow. Here's the thing. That's so weird because it's like you were telling me and Ethan that there's such a strong story and when you read that out loud i'm trying to piece together like i can see how the lyrics explain I'd, the story honestly i've been analyzing the story these lyrics the for lyrics. about 12 years now and i feel like i'm just now starting to really get a grasp on what they're saying no so they, they they love they don't ever say like oh the digging themselves they but they're also not the band to say nothing and and let people believe that it's something and um, I think mm-hmm. that there is mm-hmm. very much an, 
intentional. Again, this is very this is meant to be a very experimental release. And I think lyrically, it's also that's not exempt. I think that they went about trying to really hide everything that they're really showing. But to me, this is the point to where the whole the whole point of the of the record, I think, is to say that it's not you're not going to find the answers that you're looking for, and you're going to drive yourself mad trying to understand what is never meant for man to understand. Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> drive ourselves mad I, by trying to understand the song. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, right. You have you have to always it very well take could that into be. account that maybe that could the song be the final layer as we get into. Wait, it's no, like you you, you pour all this and then you realize that the song itself is telling you don't try and understand it. Wouldn't that be crazy? But at the same time, it does it in such a way. Mm, man. Well, maybe. I did just figure it out. I just but I also out the like song, my interpretation. This is what I'm hearing. It seems like there he's saying that he in himself is he is he is both the thing he is both mm-hmm. the predator of himself and the prey of himself cuz he's saying that I am them I am teeth I am their arousal mm-hmm. to kill feasting on self you know so I'm wondering if this is like a callback to like in life he was searching for you know he was searching so much for something that in death he is also both subconsciously hungry for forever but he's feasting on himself like your own self gnawing away at yourself I and I also think wanting there, to which not would tie into what's, what it says in my same time. I, I think I think that to an extent, I think Ethan's right. It's like depression it's like, and ang- it's like anxiety where it's like, or like right. the search for knowledge where it's like you both hate and feel terrible at your depression or your anxiety or your search or your quest to find your purpose or whatever, you know, like it's both a huge burden and it feels like you are stabbing yourself or feasting on yourself. But at the same time, you never stop your quest to be happy even if it's fruitless or you never stop searching for what it is that you're supposed to do and and that in of itself like refulfills Mm -hmm. the the endless loop you know you're never the monsters that are never truly hungry and the prey that is never truly dead yeah i think that i definitely think that that's what it's that's the the meaning underneath it but I also do think that it's the the story that they're telling is maybe the the parallel because they're they're when you look at the other parts of the album, you definitely feel like that there's there's this there's this existential journey that is being taken. But I do think that you are right in the practical application of mm-hmm. what the lyrics are really trying to say. I think so. Lucas, is this the Octavarium moment? I think I think that you're right. 
I think this was an Octavarium moment because, well, not in like all is revealed, but almost. Oh, like this is. There is still much one of the more reasons I love revealed, this album so much is, is because is even every scarier. single time I listen to it, I I discover something new I never noticed before. So the real question is, what's the? You said this was the third so, kind of suite of a. So four the suite. final suite. Um, is is the most chaotic part of the suite when everything starts to coalesce together and the whole um, there's a there's a really incredible lyric towards the end of it where um, he talks about um, I am the soundtrack to my own failure I hear one syllable one vowel I and um, at the very end of the album, the last thing you hear from the vocals is this immense 30-second long scream. And just it's kind of like you get to the point at the very end where he, he mm. can do nothing but suffer and scream. He can't even form words anymore. He is now com completely forever trapped in his torment while at the also with the knowledge knowing of why he's there now he he, he has no one to blame for himself it was Which his it was his own stubbornness his own determination to f to know the unknowable that has put him there and now he has to he has to lay there forever in in hell suffering this world of chaos knowing that the only thing that brought him there was so let's that's talk really about creepy. musically what's going on in death is death because this is this is kind of like the big moment of the of this three part uh, mega song because you've got these You've got these shorter segments, and then we've got this 13-minute-long musical journey that really the other songs, specifically the last two songs, kind mm -hmm. of are priming us for. They're getting, they, we're getting us ready for it. And the reason why I wanted to have the heart that finds you first come before is to kind of yeah. introduce the idea that Meshuggah can take us in that direction and then really go in that direction here. Mm-hmm. So I had a very interesting personal experience oh, yeah. with this song. When I first got this record, for whatever reason, this song had like a download error. And so I never knew that this song was on the album. In Death is Death specifically. It went straight from In Death is Life to a song called mm. Shed. And Shed starts with this blood-curdling scream. And is. And it just goes straight from In Death is Life to that scream. And so, and then finally, like years later, I would say like maybe four years later, I looked on, I was like looking through my iTunes purchase, but not on this phone. And I saw that there was a Meshuggah song from Catch 33. And I was like, what is this? And I saw it was In Death is Death, 13 minutes long. I was like, What? And so I downloaded it and I listened to the album again and it gets to this point. And 
I think to myself, okay, I know that the next song starts with this big scream. How do we get to that point? And I can feel the tension building as the song goes, and I start to get really nervous. And and then when it goes into the extended spooky section, I got really scared because I knew what was going to happen as soon as it began. I was just like, oh, no, this is going to be a jump scare. It's going to go from completely silent to this this scream, <laughs> and it's meant to just, like, completely disarm you. And I remember that was the most tense listening experience of my <laughs> entire life. And I knew what I knew what was going to happen because you already knew it was coming. <laughs> but also, I was not looking at how much time was left in the song, and so I kept, and so I kept having moments where I was just like, "This is when it's going to happen," and then it wouldn't happen. And so it goes into that extended section where it's 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 going through, <laughs> and it starts doing the bow bow now, where it's like building and building. I was just like, "Okay, this is it. This is where it's going to happen," and then it just and then it doesn't and it just goes back down but then you start to hear that static noise coming in and as soon as I heard that I was just like oh dang it this is it I I know I know now what's about to happen <laughs> and then sure enough I like jumped out of my seat when it happened well the first time again, this the, the first one time that I you listened, listened to it I didn't have to this with the lights off so that was a different listening experience. Oh, right, right. So because of that, I've always had a fascination with this song because I have that very specific memory with it. But there is definitely – this song is so mm-hmm. different from anything on Catch 33 that comes before it. Like I said, the the album really builds its theme around a lot of repetition and a lot of – um, a lot of very stiffness in the beginning, almost to where you're just kind of just like, are they almost like maybe they're intentionally making really stiff amateur music, but then you realize it's all setting you up for this p- chapter where everything, it's almost like it's the, it's the first two chapters are life. And it's it's the monotony of life, the constant repetition of doing the same thing over and over again. And once you enter this afterlife, this world of chaos, all of a sudden, not not only does everything come to life, but everything that was in your previous life starts to attack you in this new existence. All of the riffs that were monotone and boring in the first half mm-hmm. now all of a sudden are not only interesting and revitalized, but they're also assaulting you. They're assaulting your senses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... This is creepy. I like it, though. I like it because, you know movies are able to scare people and Black Sabbath was all like, ooh, let's make music that will scare people. And here we are with mm-hmm. Sugar now. And so, like, there's just, like there's so many things when you listen through that you can just feel this, this ominous dread just building. Like, 
towards the beginning you have that those those weird guitar effects kind of that weird sliding effect that's going on then you have that moment where it the music drops out for a little bit and the guitar scoops into the back of the mix and then it like slowly starts coming back towards you that bow now 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 and it just and then it starts growing in volume again and it 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 feels like something is hunting you Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you've got that you're great to tension quiet. moment where it goes to the bass. That and you've got that tension building there. And then, of course, you've got the, mm-hmm. the long freeform uh, guitar section. So... I've now talked for a very long time about this song. I want to. I want to. I want to hear you guys say what you guys were getting out, what you guys <laughs> liked, what what it made you feel. Well, now knowing more of the overarching storyline, because before I was just like, why? Why are we here in this long, like almost seven minute long, mm-hmm. like? soundscape you know because i was like it's creepy you know but the first time i again like that's why talking about the songs is important because before i was just like a really long because i always like in death is death i was like that's Mm -hmm. the one with like half of the song is just texture you know even before like i listened through I listened through it all the first time and then all the other times that I listened to it, I kind of like would like skip over it because I'm like, I kind of get the point of the, mm-hmm. the seven minutes of music, you know? But I didn't really understand. And I think also, I'm sad that I missed the context of it coming yeah. in as a scream, you know, after all of that. Um, but But now knowing like kind of the overarching the story and, and why you know, the colors that they're trying to paint with it makes a lot more sense. The first half of the song, I guess there's not really a ton to say about it because it's, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's it's as good as all the other songs that we've listened to, <laughs> you know. Um, but flow-wise, yeah, I now knowing more about the goal of the, of the, this movement, I guess, it, it's a lot more insightful and a lot more respectable because before I was just like creepy. Like I was like, why would you have a 13 minute long song and half of it is just texture. And now I know. Yeah, now I know too. I always thought like listening through this song, I thought it was the last of the album because it's like, Oh, death. Yeah. the ultimate tragic end, you know, but I guess not. I guess you could make it even worse. But no, I I mean, it's always a good episode when Lucas spends like 20 <laughs> minutes on his own talking about one of the songs. And and I say that being totally serious because I don't know, it's like some of the experiences that Lucas that you have with some of the songs that you bring onto the podcast is really insightful and really interesting and I like hearing a lot of that stuff, especially this the whole story about how like you didn't originally have this song on the set it completely changes the feel of the of the the latter half right 
when when you're describing that like ooh i think it's going to be at this moment when it you know changes into the next song like this is when the scream is coming i was listening to that part when you were describing that feeling and it's like it it kind of does feel like because it mm-hmm. hangs before it repeats itself every time and so it really is kind of like something's coming but you don't really realize that if you haven't listened to it first and so it's almost that the dread is worse than i think what it is i think had i listened to it and looked at like the time marker you know for like how long is left in the song when the scream comes it wouldn't be a big deal and i think that Uh that's the same case for you right but it's it's that this is so crazy it's the fear of the unknown and the wanting to understand when the screen's <laughs> yes, gonna it, does. Come. it plays into the theme of the album, guys. Oh my gosh! I love this. Okay, but musically, if we're not going to talk about meaning, musically, it's like it transitions well from "In Death Is Life," but you don't really realize the change if you haven't listened to it multiple times. Because, like, obviously, this is this is a side of metal that I don't really get into a lot. Um, but it is a little bit more darker. When you listen to In Death Is Life, it sounds almost like major. It sounds kind of like, because it goes up a half step, and it's like octaves, and everything's all like, da 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 you know. But when you go into In Death Is Death, it's now we have a lot of accidentals, and like there's a whole randomness factor now. And you have that spot in the That's middle the where it kind of changes to, I think, the, the bass or something. And then, uh, and then it kind of goes back. Um, and then, of course, you have that weird section that's a whole lot like it reminds me of um, mm-hmm. that interlude in the Lotus Eater, where it's kind of like the the keyboard or whatever it is kind of goes down chromatically and and kind of is creepy that way. It's kind of like that with the guitars, and that's why I was surprised when you and I, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was surprised when you said that all the sounds are guitars is because it's like, there's a lot of different guitar coloring and that plays into, you know, the guitars of this band knowing how to uh, mix guitars and how to get the sound that they want, obviously. And, you know, if you listen to this and try to pick out where the keyboard is, it's like, I, I'm not hearing it. Like there is no keyboard here, but it still feels like there's just so much sound and color that it's like they it can't be only guitar yeah it's really impressive what they do with just one instrument uh this tweet i put it number three where did you rank these yes Woo! all right so <laughs> we still have one more song left the the, the song that's gonna bring it all home we we really do have the one final more song. Yes. Let me is. guess. This is this is the final song of Obsidian. And this is uh, Dancers to a Discordant oh, System. So this song, returning so back to the about? themes of um, and of Obsidian in general. So this Combustion. is about um, about society, about the the dance that we are led into. 
the dance that there are people that control what we do, what we say, what we hear, what we want. And we have been, we have been brainwashed into following orders, never asking questions that we are in a dance yet at the same time, it is not a beautiful dance. It is a discordant dance. It is a dance that is ugly to the sight. Yet at the same time, we're trapped in it. Um, any attempt to leave the dance is invisibly suppressed. Um, and just about how we as a society have become so, it's almost like it's the, um, it's, it's the problem that's addressed in combustion, yet it almost feels like you would, you would think that lyrically combustion would follow dancers to a discordant system and i think it's interesting that this comes at the end almost like it's the Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like it's the futility of trying to bring down this system yeah because wasn't combustion like i'm not gonna be a part of this anymore Uh i can't do anything like well I'm trapped because because we've let the monster grow for so long. It's become so strong and has developed such a powerful hold over us that nothing we can do at this point can loosen its grip. And and then you just yeah you have that that big section the end of just saying we believe so we're misled, we assume so we're played, we confide so we're deceived, we trust so we're betrayed. And then, um, and so, yeah, it's just, um, just, just talking about the, uh, the brainwashing of the powers that be to, to keep us all in line. Nice, nice little mm-hmm. sheep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was, I don't, can't remember if it's, in this song but there was somewhere in this set where it sounded like oh I'm thinking of something else I'm thinking of a different song entirely forget I just said that <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. you saying Lyrics, sheep remind uh, me of listen the to the Floyd hidden song. tune the essence of lies and notes oh. defined as we dance to the dissonant sway the choreography refined Will subdued and shackled, reason washed aside, pledging our love to the mm. chains, our ignorance ever amplified. Mm-hmm. This song mm-hmm. is so strongly 4 4, but at the same time, it's so weirdly percussive. Everything in the song, I mean, up till about the three minute mark or something, you know, is purely percussive pretty much um even the vocals this is what i was talking about like you know when you said like his vocals are more of a rhythmic instrument than they are a melodic one Mm -hmm. like i immediately thought of the verse section to this song you know especially when he says shackled you know it's like he's he's emphasizing the consonants because of the sounds they make you know Mm -hmm. not necessarily because it's like ooh, it's gonna sound good to say Mm -hmm. shackled you know but it's like shackled you know um, and in a really weird way, I think this kind of redeems the structure of this is this is a little off topic, but I thought it was interesting. It kind of redeems <laughs> the structure of good friends and a bottle of pills. 
like how it has that kind of it's very like rhythmic the whole way through but it's like the verses are really low and then all of a sudden the choruses are like really loud and good friends in a bottle of pills was very uncomfortable and you know not really that good of a song whereas this is like this song this has such a this is some golden a, stuff a linear movement because we don't return to riffs in this song. We only move yeah. forward. And as we move forward, the song gets mm-hmm. more brutal and more um, intense. You can definitely feel it in Jens's vocal performance. Ooh, I think that it's... I love the idea of the fact that we have this long soundscape in... Um, in Death is Death, where we have this long period with no vocals. And the first time we yeah. hear the vocals again, it's in this hushed whisper. I think it's a great way to bring it back in. Yeah. But then we come back yeah. with, I think, the most ferocious screaming he's ever done in his life. When you get to, when you get towards the end, when really? he's when he's saying uh, the human spine liquefied, what are we but stupefied dancers to a discordant system? And then um, I mm. think I think his greatest scream, the one at the very very end, that last so we're betrayed. To me, that's that's the that's the um, the catharsis moment right there. The whole, all the tension is leading to that last release, that final scream. And it goes into that final riff. Yeah. So, um, and then, yeah, just the, the riffs underneath are constantly evolving and changing and moving. And we, uh, we, we get a, a, proper guitar solo in this final song what did uh grant what did you think of that solo um i actually just got to it i'm listening to it right now you're right it's like there's some melody here it's not necessarily like that singable level of guitar solo because of the rhythm that it's over. It's really hard mm-hmm. to write a singable guitar solo over like a polyrhythm. Usually you do, if you're going to write something that's super melodic, you're going to try to put a chord progression beneath it. Um, and he's not really implying any chords or anything, but it's strongly like it's mixed so that you can hear the note that it's on, not the attack or the technique you can you can hear the note which is important and that's something that like you know as you listen to different guitar parts one of the things that i mean if you really really listen to especially like a lot of early metallica they actually play with this a lot on the on the um kill em all record is how the guitars are mixed mm-hmm. should indicate how you should listen to them um, and bands don't really do that all the time and hardly any bands ever really go into something like that but um, I would not be surprised if Meshuga would do that just mm-hmm. the way that you described them being such such uh, tone smiths 
but it's you're right it's it's mixed to or yeah it's mixed to be melodic and it's not like that weird kind of or like, like strength, some of the other guitar style, moments like that we've had previously kind of solo. Mm-hmm. right right since combustion right and so combustion was the only thing that got close to here and that one was like yeah, it's not atonal, but it may very There's well be. There's a bit be of a feeling of coming full circle. Of I feel with this solo. Yeah. Actually, yeah, you're kind of right, especially mm-hmm. like the post-solo kind of lead line. Um, that's that's one of the things that I don't really like about this side of metal. Is it's like the solos feel very uninspired, but that's just because. That's just what it feels like to me because I'm not used to it. And so it's like, to me, a lot of these solos sounded like they were parts that were put, they almost sounded like lead lines to me. Whereas mm-hmm. I'm used to solos being like, oh, that's the climax of the song. You know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I love Van Halen and Pantera is because it's like the solo is treated as almost like its own song. Um. And there's almost there's a little bit of a sense to this one, but I think I think if I were to add a critique, the only thing I would say is that I feel like he's trying to play a solo that's not him. You know, that that he's very good about like for for the rest of this set, there were solos that felt like they fit the song they were part of the rest of the song they're part of the whole tapestry and this one is just like ooh we have this long section of instrumental let's put a solo over it and that's that wasn't his strongest way of soloing but that doesn't mean it's bad it's just it 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 feels different i don't know how to say it in any other way it just feels a little feels a little different i like this that may be that that may be something that you like I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get on to you for that. It reminds me of um, the Last Baron. This song really reminds me of the Last Baron in um, uh, "Crack the Sky," and that we have the whole narrative. I feel like this set was like the whole narrative of "Crack the Sky," and we hit the title song, and then basically the story ends, and then there's just like a whole bunch of riffs, right? that we jam packed into a really long song. That song's like 16 minutes or something. Maybe not that long, maybe more like 13 minutes. Um, and there's a super long, really melodic, kind of like this one, right? Where it's like all over the same riff in kind of the same key. Um, and it more washes over you. That's a great way of describing actually. I kind of talked myself into circles there, but that's a great way of describing this solo on dancers to a discordant system is like the solo washes over you. It's not really like meant to be, mm-hmm. I guess, some, it's another it's texture just to be in the mix. Yeah. It's another texture. Yeah. I actually, that was a really weird way of saying that. <laughs> I think it's a good, um, contrast to the chaos of the song. Cause the song is about dancers to a discordant system. And I actually, the, it stays in a key center the whole time. It's in like a melodic or a harmonic minor, like the entire time. And there's, I don't feel like it's atonal at all. I, I, oh, yeah, I no. actually feel like, all right, I guess it's atonal 
in terms of it stays in that scale the entire time. I actually think that it, the, the sweetness that you're picking up on, I feel like they're trying to contrast a chaotic song with a little bit of like, it's weird to say that a harmonic minor scale would be beautiful in any way, but like it's a very clean oh, yeah. guitar tone and it, I feel like they're trying, yeah. it, it's, it's almost like, while all this chaos is going around, it's still a dance. And so they put this like sweetness in there that wouldn't make a lot of sense to give you the contrast like, of like, you're still dancing, even though it's disgusting and it's terrible. Almost like it's mocking yeah. or like trying to put some sense I of I feel like it's tongue in cheek where it's like, because I was kind of preparing for the question of Lucas being like, Ethan, what part of the song? And then I was going to say, none of the song, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to even say what my favorite part is because they yeah. never really repeat anything, you know? Which it's really is... hard. But on, I feel like it's purposeful because I'm like, there's not really a part of the song that I can even hook on to. Like, I can't grab on to anything, you know? Um, not that it's not good. But then they, like, hit you with this guitar line almost mockingly. And are almost like tongue in cheek, like what in all this chaos, like we're gonna throw in this like really sweet kind of guitar solo. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's it plays into the dancers to a discordant system like really I... well. If you if you guys know what I mean, that probably wasn't a very good explanation. No, so, I know what you're saying. Um, so yeah, this is this is I feel the the whole direction of the set leads to just the the constant build and then final release of this song all of the all of the tension all of the the dread the ominousness of it all just coalesces right here in this final huge i think that guitar solo helps to help release a lot of that motion and then that last scream at the end is just kind of like the final moment of just everything just being unleashed so mm-hmm. uh, yep and I think that this fade out and we get a really fade well. out <laughs> having that having it's that good. lead line yeah, playing in the background oh yeah yeah so right Right. This was a lot of fun to make. Good set. It was a good set. <sighs> yes, yes, we have. And we've been talking so about. So we're going to take hours. another short break here. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Mashuga. So stay tuned. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to our set list for the week by Meshuggah, which was Combustion, Perpetual Black Second, New Millennium Cyanide Christ, The Hurt That Finds You First, Mind's Mirror, In Death is Life, In Death is Death, and finally, Dancers to a Discordant System. And now it's time for our last segment of the night before our special bonus segment for all the patrons which is final thoughts which is just where after you know we said our first thoughts and then we talked about the songs and now we're just gonna see what has changed so grant final thoughts go i'm i'm really scared you started as a two 
I know. I'm really scared for what I'm about to say because I don't know. Uh, okay. I did start it too. I started it a critic because I'm like, I don't think I'll ever like Meshuggah. And then I was prepared, you know, after that to come here and say, you know, I'm an appreciator now. And I almost don't even know if I'm just a fan. Like, I'm definitely a fan. I want to go listen to more music. Definitely want to listen. See, Lucas, I see what you did here, okay? This is how you got me into Dream Theater, is you explained the whole plot of Scenes from a Memory, so I would go listen to it and know exactly what was happening so I could enjoy the music and the story, right? And it worked. And then I started listening to Dream Theater on my own and then picking apart those stories. Oh, my gosh. See, this is what I'm going to do with Meshuggah now. I just – I can see it happening. And Dream Theater is, like, a top-tier band for me now. Like, like it, it – Dream Theater affects the way that I look at music now, and I barely listened to them a year ago. And I wouldn't be surprised now if a year from now – Meshuggah is like changing the way that I see music and write music, you know? Oh my gosh. I don't even know. I'm going to say I've been, I've been talking around myself this whole episode. That's probably why it's so long. I'm just going to go ahead and end it and say, I am a fan plus <laughs> a potential pillar. I'm a potential, potential, very potential. I don't know about pillar, but like top tier, you know. I need to change my ranking scale from one to five to one to ten. Just for you. They would be a potential nine. Oof. If we're a lot of points. It. That's a lot of points, Lucas. I feel like Lucas should get points based on how much <laughs> our how how our <laughs> changes. Well then I'll just start a pillar every time so he doesn't get any points. Like going in, it's like I already love this band, so you can't change my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's Limp Biscuit. It's a five, you know. <laughs> oh man, well, I'm, that makes me very happy to hear that. <laughs> Almost as if I knew that would happen. <laughs> yeah, you did. You told me this would happen. And I didn't believe you, and then here we are. Oh my god. Okay, all right, Ethan. How about you? I think for me. Uh, I, I res I have a lot more respect for um, Meshuggah as an artist because I coming in I was just like oh Meshuggah it's gonna be brutal like even like looking at the album covers I'm just like I thought that they were just gonna be more of like a stereotypical like kind of what we were saying before like making fun of more of the gent stuff where it's like let's just be brutal to be brutal and let's you know, have our messages be just, you know, kill people or, you know, about death. <laughs> kill people. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my very, my, I mean, that's the stereotype though, right? It's just like, yeah, let's, let's, you know, write really disturbing things. And I'm really happy that, um, that Meshuggah is not that way, even though it, it can lean that way, like with In Death is Death and that whole, album is is really brutal but it's but it's also it's deeper than just that because i feel like it is like a movie where it's like there are some movies where 
I think the most pop movie example that I can give is like you have like really you know cheesy kids movies like Frozen where it's like you know they all live happily ever after the end and you learn the moral and every everyone's happy you know and then there's other movies that are either horror movies or again the pop example would be like Avengers Endgame you know where it's like you do learn a lesson but like not everything is okay at the end and then you have Meshuggah where it's like you learn something and it's like not happy at all at the end it's actually worse you know and so I think there's multiple different ways to tell a story and it's cool to see a perspective it's 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 more interesting sometimes to get a perspective where like it seems like the the theme that I'm picking up from Mashuga is that like they it's like they learn a lesson and it's just twisted and it doesn't end happy because you have combustion which is I'm gonna break free and then you have dancers which is well I can't you know it's futile to even try and then you have um new millennium cyanide christ which is like i'm going to you know be a better person and trying to become a better person you end up being less human and then you have the whole sweet i can't even remember the name of the album but the mind mirror catch 33 yeah which is all about a guy trying to find purpose and the meaning of life and in doing so wastes his life and you know and so it's like good morals with I think a even more pungent ending uh, that sticks with you. I I think that I would move I, I would probably move myself from a 2 to a 3 in terms of um, I still even though I think the messaging I think is better and I'll probably go through and I'll read the here's where I'm at. I would go through and read the lyrics to uh to all of these albums because the story and the writing is really good but it's still kind of it's just like i don't like i don't like horror movies like i'm a baby you know i don't like (laughs) feeling scared i like feeling you know happy and you know (laughs) i like feeling like i can conquer the world i don't like sad endings but sometimes it's really good and so i would say my final thoughts are I moved to a two to a three. Oh, my favorite song is New Millennium Cyanide Christ. Ooh. I think I personally think it's mixed the best. Um, I think that the lines are the best. And I think that the message and the imagery is the best. So interesting. Grant, what was your favorite song? I realized I forgot to say that. Um had it not been for the wonderful epic that I'm going to be biased towards, I would have picked New Millennium Cyanide Christ as well, just because of the yeah, it, the way it sounds, and I really liked how it started and whatever. But I knew, even before I knew the meaning of the song, I knew that I was going to pick the whole Minds Mirrors in Death <laughs> trilogy tragedy in three parts epic. Right, because it's just I am a sucker for a good epic, and it took me places that I didn't think it could, even without knowing the meaning. And so I really appreciated that. That's why that's my favorite. All right. Oh, I also forgot to mention that um, dancers to a discordant system. I put it number two. Ooh, number two. So for me. 
this is like I said, I'm already at like about as high as you can go unless like I were to make it an official four pillar, which I mean that's not gonna happen. Not because Mashuk is not good enough, but just because that's that's something just it's more than just good music. Yes. Um, but like I said, it could be in that f- potential fifth spot. There have been times where Mashuga could fit that for me. Um, but I would say that my appreciation has grown for them and I have become a bigger fan of theirs. I think really delving into the lyrics for the first time and just and discovering how deep the messages are. Because, I mean... With bands like Meshuggah, you're not going to really know what the lyrics are saying because it's you have to look up the lyrics because it's like it's like <laughs> it's like all the all the grownups say you know how can you understand what they're saying with all that screaming? Um, yeah, right. I mean, I mean, you can't. <laughs> you got to, <laughs> and that's okay. I was like, you're mocking them, but they're right. <laughs> They're right, but it's not a bad thing like they insist, at least to me. Um, I think it kind of actually makes you have to go look at it in a different context and have to really start analyzing it because you're not just hearing it as it's playing. You're reading it. You're having the time to read each line over and over again and kind of think to yourself, what does this mean? And um, I th- I really kind of feel like I found the beating heart of Mashuga through this episode, kind of just like really learning about them as a uh, as an operating force, what their what their point is, their musical mission, especially the fact that like you know they're not trying to satisfy any genre or you know commercial you know, standard. They're, they don't consider themselves gent, so they're not always trying to make a gent record. And, you know, they're not at the level to where they're playing to make money. You know, they, they make albums whenever they feel like they've got something they need to say. And I'm finding that what they have to say is very interesting. And I think a perspective that is something that we should not dismiss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm even though maybe we want a happier ending, you know, it's sometimes good to know what, what the other side is. Yeah. To know, to know what it could be. And my favorite song is, I got to go with Grant with the minds, mirrors and death is life and death is death. Mainly because I just, I have that personal attachment to it. That experience listening to that for the first time is so ingrained in my brain. And I I go back to that moment every time I listen to it. Also, something I'm going to start introducing is Harry's pick. Uh, (laughs) Harry is my my four-year-old son, and he always listens to the songs with me while I'm doing my research and just putting the songs through over and over. Uh, Harry's favorite song is New Millennium Cyanide Christ. See, I knew. I knew. He he gets down to that song. I can see it. I mean, I don't have to, but like, I can see it. Yeah. It's mixed the best. (laughs) 
Um, so there's our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening to this very long episode. Maybe the longest one we've done yet, but those tend to be some of the best because you get to hear our unadulterated ranting and raving. Yeah. Um, if you, for some reason, want to hear even more of what we have to say, uh, become a patron. There's a link in the description of the episode. We're going to be talking about now the six worst Meshuggah songs. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so make sure that um, you subscribe to be able to get access to that as well as early episodes and some other stuff that's going to be coming up on the horizon. Um, follow us on social media. Um, you can message us. Let us know what artists you would like for us to do in the future. Next week's episode is going to be one of our uh, fan-suggested episodes. So um, please let us know. We are going to be taking your requests seriously. So um, hit us up on social media. The link, Another link in the description of the episode will take you to the Spotify playlist. Go listen to these songs, even if you are not a metal person. I would still recommend you at least give these songs a try. Who knows what might happen? Uh, And we've got new episodes every week, Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. Hit the subscribe button. You won't miss anything that we have uh, coming out. And, And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music.